I made a pledge some years ago not to uh, take Mother's Day to beat up on the dads, on the husbands. I took another pledge on Mother's, Day, uh, on Mother's Day not to make all the women feel guilty because they weren't the mother that they needed to be. We've been looking at a series called Experiencing God, but this message is for if you are a mother, this is for you. If you are a dad, this is for you. If you have a mother or a dad, this is also for you. Some of you are still thinking about that. <laughs> Experiencing God, how God speaks. This is a, an experience, a time when we think about how the Lord speaks to us. Uh, one of my favorite uh, artists of all time is Michelangelo. Michelangelo did an amazing work in the Sistine Chapel on the ceiling. It's called the creation of Adam. You remember the, the, the picture? Uh, Adam is sitting there, his hand is stretched out, and God is stretching his finger. And the fingers have not touched, but they're so close, they look like they could almost touch. Now, what's remarkable about this is that uh, Michelangelo, Michelangelo did this a few years ago. He worked from 1508 until May of uh, 1512. It's the 500th anniversary of this painting. It was restored uh, uh, some years ago. And what's interesting is Michelangelo, they have come across some journals uh, just about 60, 70 years ago, they came across some journals written in his own handwriting. And in, uh, in 1511, a year before he finished this work on the Sistine Chapel, this creation of Adam, uh, he wrote down, he came home and he was discouraged, and he wrote in, in, in his journal on this date, almost one year to the time that he finished this, his, his entire entry that day is, I am no painter. Amazing. He was so discouraged, he didn't feel like he could finish this. And, and if you see the picture, God's hand is straining. All the muscles are taut. His gaze is fixed on him, and, and, he's, and he's stretching out for all he's worth to try to touch this hand. But Adam, if you look at him, he's kind of lazily lying back, and his hand is not even all the, his arm's not all the way extended, and his fingers there, it's like he's too lazy, or he's, he's too tired, or he's, he's unconcerned, or he just doesn't care. Or, what is going on? And someone asked Michelangelo after he unveiled this and they went into the Sistine Chapel, he said, how did you picture God reaching out? And he said, oh, it was easy. I was, I was in the market one day and I saw a little t a toddler just learning to walk and the baby was going down and as the baby went down, the mom was reaching for this baby and when I saw her hand stretched out, it was in, indelibly imprinted in my mind and that is the hand of God, a mother reaching for her child in danger. Have you ever been like that? You can't wait for your, while, your child to walk and then you wonder why you did that so you have to put everything away? You can't wait for the child to talk and then you can't get them to shut up? Isn't that the way we are as parents? And, and yet that's not what the Lord says. The Lord says that he was wanting to communicate. He was wanting to connect with us. John Ortberg says in, in one of his books, the Bible is not so much a story of people who want to connect to God as it is a story of God's desire to connect with us. In Hebrews 1, 1 and 2, it, it gives us a startling uh, uh, reference to who God is. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. What do you mean? Well, there was a time that the Lord spoke through angels. He sent angels to, to Gideon and, and many others. Uh, there were times that he used dreams and visions and, and miracles. And, and there were times that he used a pillar of cloud by day and a, and a pillar of fire by night. And, and he, used a, he used a whisper. It, it says there was an earthquake and a a storm, but it was a whisper that God used to speak to, a, to one of the prophets. He even used a donkey one time. 
I'm reminded of that every time I get up to speak. God can use a donkey. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, Jesus Christ, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. God reaches out to us. God longs to communicate with us. And I want to look at Matthew 16. If you have a Bible, I hope you have it. Matthew chapter 16, just a few verses as we look at this today. I want to examine just briefly what God might be wanting to communicate to us. What does God want to communicate to me? Matthew 16, verses 13 through 16 says, When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, been there, beautiful cave, amazing place, waterfalls that come through that. It's a gorgeous place. He came to the region of Caesarea Philippi. He asked his disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? The reason he asked that, if you go to Caesarea Philippi, there's all of these different uh, places that honor different gods. The the sun god and the the moon god and and the the god of children and the god of, of fertility and the god of the crops. Who do people say the Son of Man is? And they replied, some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah and still others, Jeremiah, one of the prophets. And then look at what Jesus says. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? Let's do a question for each person that's here today. Who do you say that Jesus Christ is? Was he a good man? Was he a good teacher? Was he a, was he a good fellow? Was he an interesting character? Was he a prophet? Was he a priest? Was he an Old Testament character? Was he a New Testament character? Well, who was Jesus Christ? Do you know who Jesus Christ is? It's a great question. And look at what Peter answered. Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the the anointed one, the sent one of God. In fact, the son of the living God, he says. What does God want to communicate to me? Number one, God reveals himself. In these words, Jesus is trying to say to them, listen, you can have all of these other pictures, but you need to understand who I am. The context of this is there were three miracles in the chapter just before this, including the feeding of the 4,000. There's a time when he feeds 5,000 men, another time later in his, in his ministry when he feeds 4,000. And Jesus asked the disciples, after you've seen these three miracles, what have you learned? Who do you think that I am? You see, there's a general, re- general revelation that shows us who God is. If you look at the, the creation, if you look at the universe, if you go out and see the sun that God has made and the moon that God has put in, into place, it says that Jesus Christ was the one who formed the universe. The general revelation is that there is a God and that God is interested in us. Psalm 19.1 says, The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Garrison Keillor, uh, a, a very interesting author, said one time, God speaks in ordinary things like cooking and small talk, through storytelling, fishing, tending animals, and sweet corn and flowers, through sports, music, and books, raising kids, all the places, and I love this line, God speaks in ordinary ways, he says, in all the places where the gravy and the grace shines through. You think about that. All those places in common, ordinary life, God shines through. And in Romans 1.20 says, the creation of the, Since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that men are without excuse. God someday is going to ask you that question, What do you think of my Son? Who do you say He is? 
But the general revelation was not enough. God longed for more. In Genesis 17.1, we have a, a startling verse. When Abraham was 99 years old, God had promised him a son when he's 75. 24 years later, the promise has still not come true. And God shows up one more time. The Lord appeared to him and said, look at what it says. You're going to have a son. Is that what it says? No. It says the promise is still coming. Is that what it says? No. What does it say? I am God Almighty. That's the answer to the question to who Jesus Christ is. He is God Almighty. And the Lord wanted this not just to be a truth that we studied, but a person to be realized. And Jesus Christ came, John 14, 6, as he's leaving the disciples, he says, listen, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. I am God Almighty. What does God want to communicate to me? He wants to communicate himself, to reveal himself. Number two, God reveals his purposes. In these verses, in fact, just after these verses, in verses 21 through 23, Jesus says, I'm going to go to the cross. He reveals that he's going to the cross. His main purpose for coming was not just to have this band of men to start a new church, to start a new religion. Jesus says, listen, my main purpose for coming is to die on the cross. And when Jesus reveals this, what does Peter do? Peter gets it right here. He says, you're the Christ. You're the Messiah. You're the promised one. You're the anointed one. You're the son of the living God. He gets it right earlier. And then what does he say just verses later? Oh, no, 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 Jesus. When you say you're going to the cross, this can't have, it's not going to happen on my watch. If he'd been out with the men on the fun shoot, he would have pulled his Glock at that point. He would have gotten that, that 44 Magnum. Is that what that really was, Terry? Ooh, my hand was sore today. That's, I mean, Peter would have had the big stuff out. He would have been saying, it isn't going to happen now. The Lord said, Peter. In fact, he says, you're acting more like the devil than like Peter. And he rebuked him. Because his purpose was to come and die in my place, to die in your place. Jesus Christ came to die on the cross on our behalf, in our place. And God wants to reveal his plans, his purposes for us. And Peter was so busy with his plans and his purposes that he wasn't listening to what God was saying. What we plan to do for God is often unimportant compared to God's incomparable purpose for us. Psalm 33, 11, look at what it says. The plans of the Lord stand firm, how long? Forever. The purposes of his heart through all generations. Old Testament, New Testament, current times now, God's plan, his purpose needs to be revealed because you have a life that's not living up to the purpose that God has for us. And if I don't find his purpose, then my life won't live up to it either. There's a third thing that he reveals in these verses. He not only reveals himself and his purpose, but he also reveals his ways. You see, we don't just have plans. We, we want our plans, but we want our plans done our way, don't we? We are Burger King Christians. Have it your way. Come in. We want to drive through the drive through order what we want from God, and have him deliver it on a platter. And we say, no, 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 I want extra pickles in my life. And the Lord says, no. It, it, just again in the chapter before this, and you can look at it later in Matthew 15, uh, verses 21 through 28, a Canaanite woman. We don't get the, the connotation of that. The Canaanites were a, a people group 
that Israel was to destroy because they offered their children as sacrifices. You're talking about bad mothers. They would raise children to be offered as a sacrifice to the gods. And they would take their child and they would heat up this, this, this idol, this huge statue, and they would heat it up to red hot and they would put the baby in the arms of this blazing statue and the baby would burn to death in the arms of this. The Canaanites were hated. And she comes to Jesus and she says, listen, my daughter's sick. I need some help. And the disciples are going, Lord, do you know, you know the history of these people? Do you know how brutal, how horrible? Do you understand what they've done with their other children? We don't care what she thinks about her child. We don't care about her. She's annoying at best and at worst. She's hideous. Get her out of here. And the Lord looks at the mother he says, listen, woman, I, I, I really, I came, first of all, to speak to Israel. And she said, Lord, all I want is just the crumbs that fall off the table. I'm not asking for the whole menu. I'm not asking to be seated at the banquet table. I'm not asking to be seated with the king of kings. Lord, can you just throw me a crumb? A, a crumb is good enough. All I want is my daughter. This is a mother who's just coming to, to the son of God saying, but my child is dying can't you help her just for her? And Jesus says, this woman has great faith. She's not asking to be streamlined. She's not asking to be, to, to be mainstream, to be put into the midst of, of everything that I'm doing. All she's asking is for a crumb. She has huge faith because she thinks a crumb is enough to save her daughter, and he heals the girl. You see, God's ways are different from my ways. Isaiah 55, 8 says, My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your, my, your ways my ways, declares the Lord. He goes on the next verse to say, As high as the heaven is from the earth, that's how much higher my ways are than your ways. Or Micah 4, 2. Look at what it says. Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his path. About four or five years ago, I, Fred heard that I rode bicycles, and he says, oh, pastor, you ride bicycles. Meet me over at the Sundial Bridge. I had no idea what I was in for. I showed up on a mountain bike that was bought from Target. I had no water bottle. I had no helmet. I had no clue. And he said, we're going to go for a short ride. And he took me on the river trail, about 14 miles the first day, including a, some off-trail things up the side. He All of a sudden, he heads up the side of this rock cliff thing, and he says, just follow me. And I said, no. And when, he got, when I got back, he says, you don't know how to climb hills. You don't know that you need water when you get out on the trail. You don't know that you have this big, fat head that needs to be protected with a helmet. You don't know a lot of things. And he began to teach me. You see, I'd ridden a bike ever since I was a kid, but his ways were above my ways. And I spent a little money on a water bottle. And then he taught me about gloves and bike shorts. And, and the money has not stopped since then. His ways are much more expensive than my ways. And the Lord says, I, as, as I have this whole thing for you. One of my favorite authors, Mark Buchanan, has written a book about turning our world upside down. He's a Baptist pastor, and he's a pastor in Canada. And, and I just want to stop. We may not get to the rest of the message, but you need to hear this. Because he talks about the fact that most of us don't understand that there's a difference between being a traveler and a tourist. 
A traveler, the word literally comes from one who travails. He, lo- he labors, suffers, endures. A traveler, a travailer gets impregnated with a, a new and strange reality, grows huge and awkward trying to carry it, and finally in agony births something new and beautiful. To get there, he immerses himself in a culture, learns the language, the customs, lives with the locals, imitates their dress, eats what's set before him. He takes risks, some enormous, and makes sacrifices, some extravagant. He has tight scrapes and narrow escapes. He's gone for a long time. If ever he returns, he returns forever altered. In a sense, he never goes back. That's a traveler. And the Lord calls us to follow him, to be travelers. In contrast, a tourist literally means one who goes in circles. He's just taking an exotic detour home. He's only passing through. He's sampling wares. He's acquiring souvenirs. He tastes more than he eats what's put before him. He retreats each night to what's safe and familiar. He picks up a word here, a phrase there, but the language and the world, world it's embedded in remains opaque and cryptic and vaguely menacing. He spectates and consumes. He returns to where he's come from with an album of photos, a few mementos, a cheap hat. He's happy to be back. He declares there's no place like home. And the Lord, when he reaches out to us and he says, my ways are higher than your ways, he's tired of so many tourists that call themselves Christians. We stopped calling Christians disciples. We started calling them believers. You you can't be a disciple without being a believer. But here's the rub. You can be a believer and not a disciple of Jesus Christ. You can say all the right things, think all the right things, believe all the right things, do all the right things, and still not follow and imitate Jesus. The kingdom of God is made up of travelers, but our churches are too largely populated with tourists, Mark Buchanan says. The kingdom is full of disciples, but our churches are filled with believers. It's no wonder we often feel like we're just going in circles. That's a powerful indictment. And the Lord says, my ways are higher in your ways. And he calls us to listen to this communication of who he is, what his plan is, his purpose is, and how we're to do that. And this is how he finishes it up. Look back at Matthew 16, verse 17. And Jesus replied, after Peter said, you are the Christ, you're the Messiah. This is what he says, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, You are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. You need to get that. That's that's Petra, Peter, little rock, chip off the rock, and Petros, the rock of Gibraltar. You're just a pebble. On this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Seems like a very cryptic message, but it's really pretty clear. How does God communicate? It's it's not just what does he communicate, how does he do it? Three ways. Number one, by reading God's instructions diligently. By reading God's instructions, by following our instruction manual, Peter got it right at times when he was listening and when he was reading and when he was studying, and he missed it when he didn't get what the Father revealed. Did you notice Jesus didn't say, hey, Peter, you're such a smart dude. You did this on your own. He says, the Father has revealed it. I got news for you. 99.99% of everything the Father's going to reveal is already right here in his instruction manual. Read it. Read it. There's really not a formula. 
The Holy Spirit reveals it to us. John 16, 13 says, The Spirit of truth will guide you into all truth. Do we live like that? Henry Blackaby, again, another pastor, an incredible man, who wrote a book called Experiencing God, says this, We live as if God quits speaking or communicating personally to his people. Is that true? Jeremiah 23, 13 says, You will seek me and find me. When? When you seek me with all your heart. Come to his word and begin to seek him. Do we live like that? We can't control how God speaks. One Tuesday morning, uh, one Thursday morning, I, I, a lot of times I have breakfast with some of the guys from the church, and one Thursday morning I came to breakfast, and Fred sat down. Fred, uh, Fred McCullough, the, the one who has hurt me so bad on a bicycle, good friend, love him to death. Fred sat down, and he was doing the devotion yesterday at the men's, uh, at the men's event, and this was several weeks ago, and Fred said, man, I've got three great ideas for this devotional. And he started going on about his great ideas. And all week long, I'd been struggling to put the message together. And the more I read, the more confused I got. And the more I did the outline, the more it didn't work. And I was thinking, okay, Fred, that's great. And then Gary Dixon was sitting there at breakfast, and he says, you know what? It's funny that you would say that. He says, I've got not only the idea for this Sunday, but I've looked at the next two Sundays. I've got all three of my Sunday school lessons for the next three weeks. God, it's just like God just poured them into my brain. And I'm thinking, great, I'm so happy. And so Roger Ingeman says, well, you know, as a matter of fact, I've had more fun this week looking at this passage than any other passage. I was so happy for all three of them. Then I realized something. God gave them my messages. They were stealing my stuff. No. You know what I realized? God had given them the message. And that day I went back, and I had studied and I'd prayed, but I just calmed my spirit before the Lord, and I said, Lord, you know how much I've gone over this passage. I know what I want to say. I'm going to stop saying that. What do you want to say? Ten minutes later, the outline was ready. Because... All I had to do was wait on the Lord, the Holy Spirit, to use the time that I had put into his word to speak to me, to speak through me. God's silence does not mean his absence. Study harder, pray longer, depend more desperately and deeply on him. Read God's instructions diligently. Number two, request God's insight. Request God's insight. Peter got it wrong one time. He got it right another time. What's wrong? John Nash is uh, an interesting man. Uh, he was the study of, uh, he was the focus of a movie called A Beautiful Mind, a uh, mathematician. I've always loved mathematics, and when I read the, the book about his life, I was fascinated by this incredible mind, but he also had uh, paranoia and schizophrenia. He, he had terrible problems with his mind. In writing about him, an author one time said the most difficult feature of John Nash's condition was that the voices seemed absolutely real to him which is what makes the story of John Nash so remarkable. He was actually able to learn over time the art of discernment. He learned to test the voices, to find out which ones were false and which ones were true. He had, he had to learn to not listen to the ones that led to death. He, he learned not to dwell on what they said. He learned not to do what they requested. And while never completely freed from his illness, he discovered that over time their hold on his mind could be greatly weakened. He experienced, in a sense, a revolution of the mind. And Nash speaks at one point in the film about how about how, in a way, his battle is the battle that all of us have. This is what John Nash said. I'm not so different from you, he says to his friend. We all hear voices. We just have to decide which ones 
we're going to listen to. That's what I'm saying. Because every voice you listen to sets up this condition, the, the positive and the negative. You have to request God's insight. James 1.5 says, if any of you lacks wisdom, ask of God. Let he, he should ask of God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. Ask the Lord. You see, sometimes we can be with someone, and we're not really with them. Being someone physically is not all there is. I can't control your mind. You can't control mine. I certainly can't read my wife's mind. We've been together for 37, we've actually known each other for over 40 years and ministered together for 40 years and been married all of these years, and I cannot read her mind. She says she can read mine, but most of the time it's empty, so I don't know what she's getting. But I can't control her mind. But the Lord can place things in our hearts and in our mind when we ask him to. You can be in the same room with someone. Sometimes I go into a hospital room and the person is in a coma. Sometimes I've been over to a friend's house and they're, they're watching a football game. I guess that's the same thing, coma and football game. It's about the same thing. You, you know, it's equated. They're, they're totally engrossed in something else and they're not listening. They're in the same room with me, but they're really not engaged, intellectually engaged. And the Lord says... Would you like to come in and, and have this interactive awareness with me? I was reading the story once again of little Samuel. His mother brings him to Eli, and he lives with Eli, and, and he comes one night, and he says to Samuel, what did you say? And Samuel said, I, I wasn't, uh, Eli says, uh, Samuel says to Eli, what did you want? And Eli says, I wasn't speaking to you. Go back to bed. He does it three times. You remember the story? And the third time, Eli says to, to Samuel, Oh, it's the Lord. The next time you hear that, just say, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. And what I love is this commentator said, for most of us today, we say, listen, Lord, for your servant is speaking. Totally different. Here's the third thing. Read God's instructions diligently, request God's insight, and then redirect your focus on Christ. Every thought has the potential of bringing us into God's presence. I am told that the average person in their lifetime will have 185 billion mental images. 185 billion mental images that will come through your mind. Thoughts, observations, perceptions, it's staggering. And each one can tug us closer to the Lord or push us further away. There was a study, a university study that was done recently. They took 5,000 people and they put them through this process and they asked them to finish in five sentences this. The, five, the sentence they were to finish was this, I'm glad I'm not. And they would say, I'm glad I'm not bald. They would say, I'm glad I'm not heavy. They would say, I'm glad I'm, no, I'm describing me. They would say, I'm glad I'm not these things. And when they got better, all 5,000 of them felt better than, about themselves. They took another five and they asked them to finish, finish this sentence, I wish I was. And they would finish it like, I wish I was prettier or taller or, or darker or lighter or, you know, whatever. And they would finish it, and all 5,000 felt worse about themselves. Every thought that we have can push us closer to the Lord or push us further away from the Lord. So Colossians 3 tells us to redirect your focus. Colossians 3, verses 2 and 3 says, Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things, for you died. Your life is now hidden with Christ in God. And when we say yes to God's prompting, we become more sensitive to hearing him next time. I could go on, but I'm going to stop with this. Romans 12, 1 and 2 says that, that Paul is begging them to, 
to transform themselves with a new mind by renewing their mind. What does that mean? Let me give you a, a very simple illustration. We have, uh, I, I read the, the note from my daughter Liz. She has two children. She has Nico, the oldest, seven, six, six. Nico is six. The, his little brother, four, year, four years old, has Down syndrome. And when we were there the last time, uh, Nico and, and uh, Lincoln came from Sunday school, and Nico has all these songs, and he's very musical like his dad, and, and Lincoln loves to do the rhythm. You know, he's always doing the rhythm, and that was basically what he was doing. He would do the rhythm instruments. But they started on these songs, and all of a sudden the songs just kind of hit Lincoln, and one of them was, this little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine, let it shine. Don't let Satan... So Lincoln, after a while, would walk around and he would tug on his mom's skirt and he'd go. <sighs> his mom said, do you want to do a little light? And he said, and he had his light out. He, he, at that point, he still was not speaking much. And she would start singing and he would start singing and he would do the motions. This line, let it shine till Jesus comes. I'm going to let it shine. And he would do it and he'd get done and he'd tug on her, her, her shirt one more time and he'd go. <sighs> And then Nico started on hallelujah, 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 hallelujah. Praise ye the Lord. We had a little Baptocostal kid walking around doing the praise ye the Lord. And he couldn't really say the word praise ye the Lord. They were getting ready to take Lincoln to bed. It been a long day. Grandpa, Grandma there, we'd spoiled him rotten and he was, he was all wound up. And as he's walking up the stairs, she's walking him up the stairs over her shoulder. He looks at me and he goes, and as she puts him in the bed, I think the first word that I ever heard him say clearly was praise. Praise the Lord. Praise ye the Lord. He was still singing. And I wonder, we think that we're so intelligent, we think that we're so massively brilliant in our minds and I wonder who really has it right because I think that little Lincoln the four-year-old he's got it right because he has set his mind on things above not on earthly things and he spends his day not letting Satan blow it out because he's going to praise ye the Lord let's pray father on this mother's day we know that you want to speak to us and father the truth is there are many of us who talk about Christ, but we're tourists and we're just, we're just glazing the surface. We're just barely skimming over the top because, Father, you have so much more for us to be, so much more for us to do, so much more for us to experience as we experience you speaking into our hearts and into our lives and into our experience who you are. Give me the faith of Lincoln. Give me the insight of my grandson that my light might shine for Jesus Christ, that I might praise the Lord each and every day. Father, I want to be a traveler. I want to travail with you. I want to know the nuances of the foods and the language and the culture of your kingdom. To love you, to live for you, to be the person you've called me to be. And Father, may you bring fellow travelers from this group that is hearing my voice today to travel with me. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.